0: Hey mm-hmm. a little different pace than what we've done in other episodes. That is Wild Woman by Bruno Lewis featuring Josh Dell. It's a 2020 single available on Apple Music. Not quite the disco dance, blood pumping, heart pounding music we've been listening to, but I do think it sets the tone for today's episode.
1: Yeah, does one call Helen Ready disco blood pumping music? I'm not quite sure. <laughs>
0: You're obsessed with that. That was a couple episodes ago. We I guess that on. was a few episodes. Headshot boys yeah. since then. And I know you love the morning after. I know it. I do too. And, but time yes. to move on. Time to move forward. Yes. Yeah. Why is the song Wild Woman appropriate? Well, we are taking a look this episode at three films from
1: Universal that often get overlooked. They kind of get looked down upon. But I think that they were worth a look. I haven't heard anyone really talk about these movies. I thought it would be fun. So we're taking a look at Captive Wild Woman, Jungle Woman, and Jungle Captive. Is that right? Because I get those kind of twisted and turned.
0: I believe so. And I just want to warn everyone, at least I will probably get those confused as we go. Oh, through.
1: absolutely. Yeah. Cause they really do kind of blend together. You could watch them all together in one big, long three hour Zack Snyder cut, <laughs> and they really would kind of flow together rather well,
0: more or less. Doing research. I heard those called the Sheila, the ape woman series or something like that. And I've always known them as the Paula, the ape woman trilogy. Yeah.
1: There's a few different names that, that have been attached to it, but Paula Dupree is, is the main character or I'll, the character of the ape woman. Nonetheless, there are films that didn't get released until the end of the VHS era. Not all of them even got released on DVDs. It'll be fun, fun to take a look at these movies. As we mentioned last month, you're going to hear a lot of names familiar with the inner sanctum six films we covered because the same time period and a lot of the same writers and directors and stars we're all kind of doing the same thing around this time in Universal. There will be some repetition. I will try not to do much. I know mean, we didn't really really talk much about Aquanetta last time because I think we, I was trying to save it for this time. But there, there's going to be some, some bleed over because all of these movies were being cranked out at the same time. And unlike Inner Sanctum... These three movies have been very hard to get together until just recently when they were put together in the, I guess it's going to be the final universal Blu-ray set, I believe, or the next to the last one that Shout Factory is cranking out because I think they've stopped, haven't they? Um, As far
0: as I know, yes. And it is the fifth. There's six.
1: I know that you watch these on Blu-ray, so you watch the latest version of them. I watched this on DVD and VHS. I went old school. I have not upgraded. Well, I, even one of these, like I said, I, I couldn't upgrade to DVD if I wanted. You know what? I got the VCR hooked up a while back, and I, I do still have a few VHS tapes that I'm holding on, a handful of things that haven't been released on DVD, and I can't quite get converted because there's Copy Guard and all that fun stuff. So... I dusted them off, and it was kind of fun to see the old Universal videos at the beginning. And honestly, they looked really good. These movies had a good look anyway to them. I don't know that they really were improved that much as they went from VHS to DVD to Blu-ray, probably a little bit. I just couldn't pull the trigger on the price for the Blu-ray, so I went old school and I had some fun with it.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, I think. Well, let's pump the brakes a little bit and back up and introduce ourselves. I'm Jeff Owens from classichors.club
1: And I'm Rich Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonstermovieKid.WordPress.com.
0: Yes, and this is episode 56. Thank you for joining us as we go with episode 56. We'll call the meeting to order now. And let's not forget our audience on YouTube. Welcome, everybody, to the companion Show. We uh, have pretty much jumped into it and we're having a great time with it, but we're starting to take a little more critical look at it and probably not this episode, but I think you'll see some improvements coming, you know, better lighting and things like that. Of course, it's not about us, Richard.
1: I've been watching all these videos that we've done, just kind of one right after the other. And so I know that if you watch the Barbara Steele episode, you got tired of looking at the top of my head. I was listening to Jeff. I usually have my notes down in front of me, which doesn't really matter if the camera's not on. But if the camera's on, might have given a perception. I've already made some adjustments this episode. I've got my computer and my camera and Jeff and my notes all in front of me. So hopefully you'll, you'll notice that you will see less of my head and... Actually, being on the computer, I won't have to have my glasses on, so I, I won't look like Grandpa Rich anymore. On the glasses, yeah, we need to do some things with lighting and stuff like that. We're having fun with these, but we really do uh, want to hear what you have to say. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you want to see, what you what you don't like, what you do like. As London randomly jumps in the top of Jeff's head, maybe we need more London in the episodes. I don't know. Thank you for hanging in there as we figure out this. YouTube fan technology thing.
0: And I'm sorry, but there's nothing I will be able to do about my head and the real estate here. <laughs>
1: I'm facing the windows and Jeff's
0: got windows off to
1: the side of him. So unless we build a studio, you know, maybe we need to do a Kickstarter. Yeah. Game. I think, you know, we should start modestly with $150,000. We could do a nice studio for that, folks. We'll, we'll Patreon, launch that soon. Patreon,
0: here we come. <laughs> Well, let's uh, introduce our new members. We've got several new members this month yeah. to our Classic Horrors Club Facebook group page, so that's really exciting to see. Let's formally welcome Annie O'Reilly, Bob Kupczynski, Michael Elliot, Dave Christian, Greg Trout, and Stephen Reed Harbin. Yes, welcome,
1: welcome to the
0: welcome to the clubhouse gang. Glad to have you here. We don't really have formal feedback, but there's a couple interesting things that I think we should do this episode. First of all, came through, I believe, my blog, but it's a question that I think is relevant to our show and and some of the things we talk about. As you know, I'm doing a TV terror guide on Fridays, and I'm looking at 1970s TV movies. Someone reached out and, and asked to help identify one of the movies that he remembers, I have not gotten to it yet, I don't believe, but I thought I just would, we'll count this as feedback. I'll put this question out here and if anybody can help him out, let us know. I'll be sure and respond and, and give him this information. He is looking for a 1970s to 80s TV movie where in the finale, a murderer, costumed in a disguise with a shaggy head, burst into the heroine's big city flat and attacks her. He's shot dead by a friend who was following the murderer. Does that sound familiar? It doesn't sound familiar. They do have a plot search
1: on IMDb, and sometimes that can kind of guide you if you've got something unique. There was a movie for the longest time that I I remember watching as a kid, and I was trying to figure out what the name of it was, and it had to do with these people that were breaking into like a family owned electronic store or something. And they ended up like forcing the, the mother and a son or two of the sons to like drink Drano cleaner. This is a TV movie. And Mm -hmm. like the mother and the oldest son who was like the star athlete or whatever, he died. And the younger son ended up being, having to take care of by his father who they did not get along. And so they, of course, the whole movie is about them getting along, but it was like, I remember it being really kind of gruesome, you know, it's like, that's just horrible. It turns out the main star of the movie was Richard Chamberlain. I looked for it for years. And I finally, IMDb didn't help me with that, but I finally stumbled upon it. Then I laughed. Cause it's like, well, I was in it all along. I don't know. That's a thought. We might try to do that or, um, I don't know, search for the plot via Google. That's how I eventually found my movie is that I put in some of those keywords like shaggy head or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's the part that sticks out to me, shaggy head. And I'm not sure if he Uh, needed a haircut or if he had a beard or what. Well, if you do have any suggestions or uh, have any feedback you want to provide for this episode or future episodes, you can call and leave us a message at 616 649 2582. That is 616 649 Club. Pay my You want cent. to make that memorable so you will remember to call in.
1: Yes, and I've got to pay my one or two cent licensing fee to Steve Sullivan for that. Thank you, Mr. Sullivan.
0: You can also send us an email or a, a recording on an MP3 via email to classichors.club at gmail.com. Or uh, through either one of our blogs, if it's something that's relevant, we'll be sure to pass it on like this request that came in earlier. We have some other feedback from our friend and participant on the Facebook group page, Joe Carson. He actually watched each of these three movies, you know, along the same times that we were, and he rated them on Letterboxd. So he shared those ratings and I just thought, well, we're going to pretend like Joe's with us and we will share his comments and his ratings after each of the movies. When we are done talking about them, that's going to be kind of fun. And that's a, I thought that's a great way to participate. I mean. Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. We, we'd love Joe continue to do it. If we're playing movies that you want to play along with, you know, hopefully next month's theme, you will we'll be able to do the same and anyone else. That's a great idea. We'll share your thoughts on the show. Easy way to do feedback. You watch a movie post it on Facebook, and we'll give you a shout out on the show.
0: I think that's all of old business and we are ready to move forward with Captive Wild Woman. Creature of evil, running amok, blazing a trail of fear crazed horror. From the jungle's most guarded secret comes this amazing story of a captive wild woman torn between the mad cravings of animal blood and the longing for human love. A woman whose jungle instincts give her sinister power over man and beast.
1: And suppose your experiment does succeed. What will you have?
0: A human form with animal instincts. You know what the priests will do to you if they catch you? No, of course you don't. they put you on trial. Then they'll put you in the electric chair and kill you.
1: Behind these gates is buried the legend of a mortal who went beyond the realm of human powers and tampered with things no man should ever touch. Dr. Sigmund Walters uses a combination of glandular therapy and partial brain transplant to turn Sheila the ape into Paula the ape woman. June 4th, 1943, Captive Wild Woman made its debut on the big screen And, you know, I mean, compared to other films around this time, I mean, they were getting the monsters, right? I mean, we were getting 43, Son of Dracula came out, right, in in, in 43. Frankenstein and Wolfman and The Mummy and all of these great monsters. And then we get Paula Dupree, The Ape Woman. It, It was a bit of a letdown. Hyped up, certainly, if you watch the trailer, it's like, yes, you know, all this jungle woman action and it had a good cast the lovely evelyn anchors who was kind of a universal mainstay you had john carradine who wasn't a household name this was actually his first lead role yeah he was almost 40 by this point i've always joked that john carradine always looked like he was 60 years old or or older he certainly looks older than pushing 46 at this point point.
0: And Richard, um, I actually counted because I read that was his first leading role. And I thought, really? This was his 78th movie. That's his insane. First leading role.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, John Carradine, I mean, he, you know, we're going to, I, you know, I didn't get a lot of information on him because we've talked about doing a John Carradine episode at some point. And I think we can because he does do starring roles in movies. He's also a lot of times in the background. I think we will do a John Carradine proper episode at some point. I don't have a lot on on John Carradine, but, you know, he was not necessarily the lead, but Evelyn Anchors was. And, of course, that's part of the problem with this movie, I guess, as far as, like, the billing, right? It's like, well, who do you you put? Well, there's no Cheney. There's no Karloff. Who do you put? There's no Lugosi. John Carradine wasn't a household name, and Evelyn Anchors isn't necessarily... Going to draw them in on the monster crowd. Melbourne Stone, Melbourne Stone was usually a, a background character. He was a supporting role. And the only reason that he gets the role of Fred Mason in this, the lion tamer, essentially, was because he looked like Clyde Beatty. And we get a lot of Clyde Beatty in this movie because there's a lot of stock footage. From a 1933 film called The Big Cage, which was a movie in which Clyde Beatty was a lion tamer in that. Essentially, there's a lot of lion and tiger scenes that are pulled from that movie. So that's really the reason why Milburn Stone got it. And Aquanetta, not a household name either. I mean, Aquanetta had had, had a couple of roles before this, but I think and maybe one or two roles. I mean, she didn't do a lot of films to begin with. Captive Wild Woman has is, is always been a B or C grade universal monster flick. But I think there is some fun stuff in here. They're really easy. All three of these films crank in at like 65 minutes long. They're really easy just to uh, press play and, and you're not losing a lot of time. They got that nice, clean, polished universal pictures look. Just you didn't have that star power. And you didn't quite have, I don't think in any of these movies, you didn't quite have 65 minutes of a story. Honestly, you could have combined all three movies into one and had a good solid 80-minute movie, probably. Maybe 90 minutes, which would have been a little long at the time, I guess. I don't know. These movies were ones that I haven't really gone back to and revisited for a long time. Captive Wild Woman has been probably one of the easiest of the three to get because it was released on VHS in 94. So it wasn't at the tail end. It was kind of in the middle. It was part of that initial group of of, uh, films from Universal. It eventually, it was one of the last movies put out on DVD. It was put out on DVD in 2009 as part of the Universal Horror Classic Movie Archive set. Horrible name for that set. And that really was just kind of this weird mishmash of leftover films they didn't quite know what to do with. And oddly enough, though, that's the only one of the trilogy that they bothered to put on that set rather than try to eke out another set and put out the other two. They never did together. Captive Wild Woman, though, has been easier to find for a very long time. Uh, and of course, now all three of these are on one Blu-ray set from Shout Factory, which is, is nice that they're finally together, but it's taken a long time to get all three of these films together. My initial thoughts, and we'll dive into deeper, but I, you know, this was a fun film and I think it it doesn't deserve some of the hate that other people kind of throw on it. No, it's not a Frankenstein meets the Wolfman or, or, you know other even contemporary films of the time that were non-universal. It's not like poverty row level. It's got a nice polished look. Yeah. It's got some stock footage. A lot of it at times. It
0: was, it was a fun film I thought. Yeah. It's basically a variation on the Wolfman more or less. Yeah. Yet I don't think they take advantage of that enough No. to really make it something. I want to circle back to Clyde Beatty and ask, did you know him? Do you is that name here? I'm, clear? It, I'm familiar he was, with
1: Clyde uh, Beatty. Can't say that I've ever seen any of his movies, but I, I'd heard his name. I wasn't surprised as the movie was progressing as we as we were working our way through the story. And, and of course, you know, Milburn Stone plays the character of Fred Mason, who's the Clyde Beatty wannabe. He's coming back from his jungle expedition. He's got all these animals. He's reunited with his. Girlfriend, Beth Coleman, played by Evelyn Anchors, and he's brought with him Sheila, the the very tame, loving gorilla. Clearly the man in a suit. I've done well. You know, those scenes were were as well as you're going to get at this time period. That part of it was worked well. And it allowed them with a 65 minute running time to use I don't know how many minutes of stock footage, but there's a lot. In 65 minutes, you you probably get maybe 10 minutes of stock footage, maybe 15. I don't know. I mean, it seemed like there was a lot of some prolonged fight sequences. And then they would film close-up shots of Milburn Stone with his whip. And then they go back to the long shots. And you can't quite make out that it's Clyde Beatty. But that's why, you know, because there was some similarities in the way that Milburn Stone and Clyde Beatty looked.
0: I had never heard from him, although I've seen this movie before, but I just didn't remember. But it opens with a big title card. We hereby make grateful acknowledgement to Mr. Clyde Beatty for his oh, yeah. cooperation. So I did a little research on Clyde Beatty, born 1903. He started; uh, he was born in the States, but one of his first jobs was uh, in a circus in London, Howe's Great London Circus in 1921. Like you mentioned, he did movies through the 30s and 50s. He had his own TV show in the 60s, or excuse me, from 1950 to 52, The Clyde Beatty Show. He did other television shows through the 60s. He was on Ed Sullivan once. There was something about this. He told Ed that the stage wasn't big enough for what he needed to do. He actually once got mauled by one of his lions named Nero. Did you notice in this movie, the lion is named Nero? Well, I didn't realize it when I watched it that really those scenes were from a movie that was 10 years earlier, The Big Cage. That probably was the real Nero that mauled him. He recovered, went back to work, and he just died of cancer at the age of 62 in uh, 1965.
1: At the time, that kind of stuff was big because we didn't have television. We didn't have movies. Right. So you're seeing one of these lions or tigers in a zoo generally they're not doing anything but if you go to a show go to a circus you're seeing them move around with other beasts and you're seeing someone risking their life you know by getting into the cage it seems really simplistic it also seems like today's audiences are gonna like the poor animals are getting hurt i should have said this up front carla didn't watch any of these movies folks These were not for her. And obviously, I think I was 15 minutes into this one. And I'm like, I'm so glad Carla avoided this one. If you haven't and you are bothered by that or you have someone who watches movies with you who's bothered, these probably aren't going to be your movies because there is some animal stuff, especially the lion and tiger fight. This is kind of stuff that you wouldn't see today's audiences do. I mean, we don't even have circuses, traditional circuses anymore. I mean, Barnum and Bailey shut down. Because of the animal abuse that tends to happen when you're whipping tigers and lions to do your stage show or whatever. I mean, even like Siegfried and Roy in Vegas, once one of them, I forget which one it was, got mauled by the tigers, that was the end of of the stage show. There was no way they were ever going to do another one or even attempt to do another one. And You know the tigers remained on display. They had like a zoo there, and they may still have them there. The Mirage, I don't know. They used to have a a zoo behind the uh, hotel. It was kind of connected. You could go to the dolphins, and then you could go into Siegfried and Roy's Secret Garden, I think, is what it was called, and it was basically a zoo in the middle of Vegas. But that's where the white tigers were. Now, of course, zoos are making it so that you don't just see them in a cage. They've got a big habitat and. They're putting money into it because they want the animals to have a better life than getting stuck inside just a a small, small little cage. Those old zoos like that are being kind of shoved aside. And this is the uh, zoo podcast. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. Welcome.
0: I like the way the animal footage was incorporated. I thought it was pretty good. And I don't know if this could be related to the Blu-ray. You mentioned you didn't know if there was, you know, much of an upgrade it's kind of doubtful, but to me it looked really good. And there were some particular shots where you could kind of tell it, it wasn't a green screen, but there might be like a row of tiger cages. And yet, and the characters are standing in front and you could kind of tell they were in front, front of some type of image or projection, but it looked really good. It, I, I really liked it. And the difference in like the grain of the film between uh, the actor and the lion tamer wasn't bad i mean i thought they did a really good job
1: yeah considering it was only like 10 years after the the first movie and the fact that the footage was specifically filmed for the movie for the big cage probably helped making that footage look good as opposed to like if they had gone randomly and and you know you can usually tell even like in Tarzan movies when they were doing like stock footage of like safaris or whatever, the footage was always definitely of a lesser grade. Yeah, you're right. You didn't see that in this necessarily. And and that's the time period. It's only 10, 10 years later. And the fact that they're using that Clyde Beatty footage. Yeah. You can see sometimes clearly it's putting the character of Fred Mason into a scene. You can kind of tell, okay, there's a little bit of, difference slightly but i did think it, it it blended rather well together i mean some obvious moments where you could really really see but think about 1943 audiences really they would have been convinced that what they were seeing was was for this movie keep in mind there was no television no movies back then so you see a movie 10 years ago you're not going to remember it as well if you're going to see captive wild woman you're not expecting to see clyde Beatty.
0: As far as the humans go, you mentioned Evelyn Anchors. And I know she's a, a big thing, and this is going to sound like sacrilege, but she's never really, I haven't thought that much of her. She didn't really stand out. Sometimes <clears throat> I'm not even sure which woman it is. Yeah, But I really liked her in this for some reason. And I think it, it's her and the main guy. The way they're written, there's some humor. There's some good characterization. Yeah. I really enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, I mean, she she's... Much beloved, I think, for amongst Universal fans, because she's in so many movies around this time period. And I thought she did really well in this movie. She clearly stands out. Milburn Stone, for being somebody who is a secondary background character, we saw him in a couple of the Inner Sanctum films. Here he's put into
0: a a position where he's more of the lead. And I think he does really well. I do too. I'm surprised he wasn't known more for a lead. He brings a lot of energy and humor to the character.
1: We talked a little bit about Melbourne Stone last time. He was born in 1904 in Burton, Kansas. So he's a Kansas boy, had over 168 credits. But from a movie perspective, you know, he was in some other genre related films uh, Spider Woman Strikes Back in 46. He was in Invaders from Mars in 53. And I, like, as we said, a couple of the Inner Sanctum films. But he was in kind of like middle aged by the time he takes on the role of Doc Adams on Gunsmoke that which was 1955 and from that point forward he was a tv actor and did very i don't know what else he did for the next 20 years other than Gunsmoke. an actor getting a 20-year gig on a television show unheard of even back then and even really by today's standards i mean how many actors i mean i know law and order or certain shows that seem to go on forever but those are far and few between most tv shows die out around season seven or so because that's when contracts start getting renewed and TV networks would just assume replace the show rather than keep it going much longer because it gets expensive to make. I mean, all the Star Trek shows end after se- season seven because that's when the contracts were up and bringing them all back for season eight, it's too expensive. So let's end the show and let's move on to the next. Milburn Stone, I think there was a potential there. He could have been bigger than he was for whatever reason. He didn't have maybe whatever features they were looking for facial features or whatever at the time. But he's a solid actor. This movie really, really shows it. You know, we do see him in the second one, but much like Evelyn Anchors, it's it's a token appearance. He's really the lead male in this one and does a really good job. Who else do we have in it? Aquanetta is the main star. Uh, But before we get to Aquanetta, I want to talk about the drunk. I think Gruen, I think was his name, or Gruen. Paul Fix was the actor who played him. Now, Paul Fix was an actor with over 330 acting credits, debuted in 1925, so he was in the silent era. Did a lot of of the the mystery movies Like we mentioned the names of these last time We'll mention them again Sherlock Holmes, Charlie Chan, Mr. Moto I think everybody was in those movies around then But he had a few other semi-genre You know, he was in uh, Dr. Cyclops He was also in the Ghost Breakers Which is, you know, we I think we Yeah, we talked about the Ghost Breakers here On Mm -hmm. uh, the Bob Hope episode we did Star Trek reference, thank you Played Dr. Mark Piper uh, on the uh, second Star Trek pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Of course, he's best known for most people as Sheriff Micah Torrance on The Rifleman, the popular uh, Western TV series with uh, Chuck Connors. And one of his last roles was as Commander Kronos in the Battlestar Galactica episode, Take the Celestra. That was in 78, I think, 78, 79. I mean, he died in 1983 at the age of 82 of kidney failure. He's a young, younger man, obviously in this one. I, but I immediately recognized him. Star Trek fans or or uh, Battlestar Galactica fans will probably recognize him. But Aquanetta, not starring role, but I mean, she is kind of the main monster oh, yeah. of the piece. I think they said introducing Aquanetta, didn't they? mm mm-hmm. This one, but according to her credits, she had had a role in Arabian Nights in 42. Sometimes the introducing is a little bit creative. You see that, but someone's may have had maybe one or two movies before, but this was considered their breakout role. Not bad for a breakout role, I guess, and she didn't really have to learn many lines because she never speaks in the movie, but she can speak, Because we do eventually see her speak, just not in this movie. A very interesting character. She had a very interesting look about her. She was born Mildred Davenport in Ozone, Wyoming in 1929. Hmm. Excuse me, 1921. I should just come right out and say a lot of this information I'm going to be reading is from IMDb. Normally I don't do verbatim, but I was kind of going down the list here. So a lot of this is IMDb. She was nicknamed the Venezuelan Volcano <laughs> by Universal Studios, but she was actually not Venezuelan. She was of Arapaho descent. Venezuelan sounds a lot more exotic. She was often seen with her long black braids, beautiful silver and turquoise jewelry. Other films she was in, Dead Man's Eyes was the Inner Sanctum film. She was in Tarzan and the Leopard Women, Leopard Woman, excuse me, 1946. Lost continent in 51. Uh, In the 1950s, she moved to Phoenix, Arizona, married the owner of a local car dealership. She appeared in local ads for her husband's business, had her own local TV show called Aqua's Corner that apparently accompanied the Friday night movies. I don't think she was a host, but apparently some type of TV show. She wrote a book in 1974 called The Audible Silence which was a compilation of poems of life, love, and Indian jewelry. Interesting combination. (laughs) She used her celebrity and charming personality to support and raise money for a number of cultural groups and charities, including the Mesa Lutheran Hospital, Phoenix Indian School, amongst others. Sadly, she died of Alzheimer's uh, complications in Arizona in 2004, but she had lived to be 83, and she had four sons, Not a lengthy career, but certainly for universal horror fans, we all know her for these movies and the Inner Sanctum film. And Tarzan fans will remember her for her appearance in Tarzan and the Leopard Woman, which that's Johnny Weissmuller. I think it's one of his last films, if not his last. Well, no, I think Amazon's was his last one. It is one of his last movies, though. So, uh, And I saw that many, many years ago. I can't tell you anything about it. She was also in a Grizzly Adams movie in 1990. Kind of an odd comeback around that time period. I don't know the story behind that. She had a very unique look. I thought she was good as Paula Dupree. I, I, I liked her expressions sometimes that weren't necessarily overly cheesy. Sometimes they were, but sometimes
0: they I think they were restrained. I kind of liked her in the role. I thought she did well. So she was not a foreigner, and why I'm asking is then, in the second movie when she speaks, it's a very that must have been an affectation. They must have made her talk that way. It it, it seems like that might be your natural way you speak if you're from another country.
1: Yeah, but you know, she had the same type of, of voice. Again, I don't know if Universal just made her talk that way, or if I don't know, maybe that was a little bit of, of her Arapaho upbringing i mean i i don't know i mean she's born mildred davenport she was of arapaho descent but it doesn't sound like she was like how many generations back i don't know but she was born in wyoming so i don't i don't know that that's an interesting question maybe some of our listeners out there know a little bit more about aquanetta why she had the accent or if that was just a creation from these studios which it could very well be
0: any other uh, cast stuff before I make some comments? That's about the only cast stuff that I
1: have. I, I you know give a, a shout out to the, the writers and directors. Again, some familiar names. The uh, story was by a Ted Fithian. This is his one and only credit. Captive Wild Woman did not start a lengthy career for Ted Fithian, at least not in the movies. Neil P. Varnick, which he also did Mummy's Tomb. The screenplay was by Griffin J., who also did The Mummy's Hand, Tomb and Ghost, Cry of the Werewolf, Return of the Vampire, Devil's Bat, Devil Bat's Daughter. And then Henry uh, Suture, who we mentioned in the last episode, he did Mummy's Tomb and Ghost, Jungle Woman, which we're going to talk about, and Frozen Ghost, which is one of the Inner Sanctum films. The film was directed by an Edward Dimitrik who is best known, probably more for these than, than Captive Wild Woman. He's known for Back to Batan. And the classic uh, Humphrey Bogart film, The Cane Mutiny, mm. which uh, I love that movie. It's been a few years since I've seen it. Yeah, he, he directed that. That's that's what I got for the cast and, the, and the, uh, the people behind it. Solid universal production, if not lacking maybe a little in, in the the script. It just didn't quite have enough to fill a 65-minute movie, so that's why we get the stock footage and, and the story. But, I mean, I think the overall story, I mean, essentially – I guess we probably should talk a little bit about that though, is, is that Sheila is given a, a serum by John Carradine's Mad Dr. Walters that ends up turning her into Paula Dupree. and she has an ability to control the animals because it's her upbringing, I guess, being Sheila is that she has a almost a kind of an unspeaking. she doesn't speak, right? But just her presence. It's like they sense her presence and sense that power, even though, you know, she's clearly not Sheila, but there is Sheila there. There's something, something about her presence is controlling the animals. And of course, Paula does fall in love with Fred Mason, of course, and Fred's in love with Beth. And that never ends well on the best of circumstances. And you throw in some, some, some serum from a mad doctor and some, some Sheila ape jealousy going on and uh yeah it it doesn't end well for for dr walters you know paula ends up being kind of the spurned she loved she loved fred but fred didn't love her back and so she she goes on a bit of a rampage
0: that's a common theme and they they play with it a little bit in the third movie there's a romantic uh disappointment there that's the catalyst for yeah things that go wrong and uh, well, we'll talk about when we get there, but I grew a little weary of that, especially in the third one. I agree. Uh, yeah. Now, did you read anything about how this is a very different movie than what they intended to make and that they touted it ahead of time for a couple years before it was made? And I think, well, I was gonna say I, I kind of got a pre code field, but I, I didn't. But I feel like that's originally how it started because it was supposed to be a complete brain transplant. And the censors said no. I mean, that was to put a human brain in an ape was apparently too, the content was just too much for audiences of that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're dealing with that beast and human connection. And that was probably more from a religious perspective. That was going to ruffle a few feathers. Yeah.
0: So they just did partial brain transplant. There's some things I really like about this movie. We talked last time about the spinning headlines, you know, that advance the story. This has yeah. got some good ones. This one I particularly liked, and I can't recall ever seeing a headline quite like this in reality. Man killed by strangulation. Okay, fine. The sub-headline, nails of beast pressed through back of his neck, severing spinal cord. <laughs> um that's some headline I think that that tells you all
1: you need to know really I mean you you know what else do you need to read at that point
0: exactly you know I think in all these movies especially the second one again they don't really play up the like the werewolf aspect I think we we see a, a transformation one in this movie but in the others you sure don't but yet like she's walking down the street in her coat and they don't really show the top of her body, but they show her feet and their eight yeah. feet, you know, walk. I thought that was kind of a fun touch. I
1: kind of wondered how she was able to do that without anybody seeing her, right?
0: The makeup's pretty cool. I like when she's Paula, the ape woman with the, the makeup. I think we needed hair. to see more of it. Yeah, I thought yeah, it was really exactly. good. Yeah, exactly. We needed to see more. As usual, I had some things that kind of bothered me. I really can't criticize the concept, but I I have a hard time making the connection between glands and like transforming physical matter you know into another creature but you know that's fine that's what they go on and then the one thing that really bothered me is Sheila goes missing right and Fred and the owner of the circus they don't really seem concerned about where she is you know Fred's more concerned about can he take the spotlight and be in the, the star act of the show that night yes yeah and you know, I'm like, hello, Did don't you remember Sheila's Missing? You want to try to find her or wonder where yeah, she is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's fun. It's a fine movie. I enjoyed it. Not enough about it really to swing one way or the other, or really loving it or really hating it. It's just pretty middle of the road for me.
1: Yeah, there, there just wasn't enough story there. They, they 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 fleshed out a lot to hit 65 minutes, which is, I think, why these movies... And honestly, they, they, it gets worse, right? As we go to the second and third, there's even more fleshing. But like I said, you know, I, there there's part of the story here that, that I enjoy. It's just, I always say, right? You know, I mean, if, timing of, of a film and sometimes, you know, a two hour movie doesn't need to be two hours. It needs to be less. Godzilla versus Kong is a prime example, right? It's It's an hour and 53 minutes. The director was asked, why isn't this a three hour movie? And he's like, not every movie needs to be three hours. He said, this movie worked better at just under two. That's what I went for. And you know what? In that regard, he was 100% spot on because I think if that movie would have gone on longer, you knew that it wouldn't have been. And even he said, look, if we made the movie longer than two hours, it wouldn't have been more monster footage. It would have been more people talking. And nobody wants that in this type of film. He knew the audience very well. This is a film where you can't go less than 65 minutes because then you're not really a feature. Right. I think that's, that was part of a problem is that if you go less, you gotta, you gotta fill in and at least get to that past that one hour mark. So you could be considered a feature film. Unfortunately, they, they just didn't have enough story there and you can only do so much footage from the big cage and they do a lot of it. Honestly, and this is where I think that you could have taken elements from the second and third movie and put them all together, maybe do a little less stock footage. And you might have had enough for a much better film, I think, if all three would have been combined into a maybe a 75-minute movie. A little quicker pace, edit out some of the other stuff. And I think I think you could have had enough there for a better film rather yeah. than stretching it out over three films.
0: And the last thing I'll say, I meant to say earlier, I forget how much of these movies are mad scientists. You know, you think Paula, the ape woman, she's the monster. But each of them, really, the focus is more on the mad scientist of each one. You know, here, John Carradine, a lot of time is spent on his reasoning and his process and going through the actual experiments. And each one of the scientists in this is pretty mad. (laughs) I mean, they've got some crazy notions and they do some pretty despicable things. Yeah, absolutely. So anything else or should we see what Joe had to say? Uh, Yeah, let's, let's see what Joe has to say. All right. I don't know how many stars you can give a movie on letterbox, but he gave it two, and I don't think he quite liked it as much as we did. He called it a pretty dismal patchwork consisting mostly of stock footage from an old Clyde Beatty movie. Aquanetta does make an impression, though, in her few minutes of screen time. Animal lovers should stay away from this film.
1: I would agree. I would agree with that comment. He does give the others. I mean, here's, I guess, a sneak peek. I think he he liked the other ones probably maybe a tad better than we did. Uh, one of them. It's a patchwork, absolutely. But I, I do think there's there's a little more here than what we get in some of the others. And honestly. You could stop with this one. You don't even need to see the two sequels. And I think you'd really be more or less fine. You don't see the character of Paula Dupree meet a definitive end. It is left a bit open, but it's kind of implied that she's going to meet her end maybe, but it's open enough that we get the, we get the, the sequel. So in that regard, you could still see this one and be fine i think without seeing the other two but i will say that i I did enjoy it and so i recommend it if you're a universal fan but it needs to go towards the bottom of the list there's a lot of other better universal films that you need to see before you see captive wild woman but it's not the worst that they did
0: I bid you welcome.
1: I love that. Universal Studios home video presents the most famous monsters of all time in one horrifying collection. I am Dracula. classic films in all new packaging featuring original poster art plus trailers look for a special edition of Dracula scored for the first time by world-renowned composer Philip Glass and performed by Kronos Quartet What music they make. The Universal Classic Monster Collection. Look inside each video for a $5 savings offer and take them home
0: forever.
1: The evil that man has wrought shall in the end destroy itself. Dr. Carl Fletcher is the second doctor interested in Sheila the Eighth. He wonders what Dr. Walters obtained from his experiments and buys a sanitarium so he can continue them. During the coroner's inquest, flashbacks within flashbacks reveal the fatal results.
0: The sequel to Captive Wild Woman, Jungle Woman came out on June 1st, 1944. It was again a universal picture directed by our friend from last episode, Reginald LeBorg. This was my least favorite of the three. I like some things it does, but it's more problematic for me than... It is satisfactory. What did you think of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, from a story perspective, this is the least favorite. I have to admit, though, I might like this a tad better than Jungle Captive because of some of the cast. Yeah. You know me. I I said this last time and I'll say it again. I really like J. Carroll Nash. And so he always kind of elevates a movie for me. And I also like Samuel Hines, who plays the coroner. He played Paul Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. He was also in Murders in the Zoo, uh, The Raven. He was one of the doctors in Man-Made Monster. Lon Chaney ends up killing him. For some reason, there's just something about him that I didn't really get to know my grandparent. If I had a grandparent, I was like, I'd want him to be him. He just kind of had this this way about him. (laughs) Not really boisterous, but just kind of like somebody you think you could just kind of sit down and he could give you some sage advice, you know, because he kind of does that. And it's a wonderful life, right? He's trying to tell George and he's not overly rambunctious. He's not a crazy grandpa, but I don't know. I always kind of just like him whenever he pops up in a movie. And like I said, Jay Carroll Nashier plays Dr. Carl Fletcher, and I, I always like his
0: performances. So but I agree with you on that, but I think there you can kind of draw a line. I think everyone else is pretty awful, yeah. uh, Aqua that's well, excluded. Yeah. And you know, we yeah. talked last time about how yeah. uh, Paula, the ape woman, you know, becomes attracted to some one of the men, and that creates that guy, Bob. She, what a! I don't know what, how she's awfully desperate to be attracted to him. No charisma, no energy, not even really. Very good looking.
1: Yeah, Richard David, he's only in two movies. So he's in this movie and Hat Check Honey <laughs> in 1944. You know where this career is going. It's nowhere, right? Two movies and done. I'm kind of curious, though, when you see that, when you see an actor, actress, and they do like one or two or three movies and then there's like nothing else. You know, there's nothing on IMDb. There's nothing else. It's like whatever happened to them? Did they leave Hollywood? Did he become a pimp in New York City? Did he sell used cars or something in Mary Aquanetta in Arizona? I don't know. What happened to Richard David?
0: What studio executive was he the nephew of? Yes. Yeah.
1: Who did he know Mm -hmm. to get in this role? And clearly somebody somewhere said, you know what? I don't care that you know, you know, so-and-so. It's like, you're horrible. And we're done with you. Thank you and goodbye. Yeah, I mean, he's not great in this. Lois Collier as Joan Fletcher. She's serviceable, but she's she doesn't really stand out. And, again, she's not in that many movies. So she was in The Cat Creeps. She was in uh, A Night in Casablanca with the Marx Brothers. I can't even remember what character she played in that, which says a lot about Lois Collier. It's interesting, right, that Evelyn Anchors gets star billing in this movie, playing now Beth Mason, married now to Fred Mason. We have Milburn Stone back as Fred Mason. So Evelyn Anchors gets starring role in this movie above J. Carol Nash, because she was, I guess, a slightly bigger name at this point. But she's barely in this movie. She She's in one scene in the coroner's office. She gets a handful of, of lines. She filmed that scene. I guarantee you... It took like an hour to film that scene, right? And then she gets star billing. Clearly, they felt like she was the name they wanted to bank on more than anybody else. And I'm willing to bet she agreed to do this movie if they gave her star billing. But she's not the star of this movie, and she's barely in it. Milburn Stone, as Fred Mason he gets two scenes right cuz he's in the in the the coroner's office but then he also gets a scene where he's talking to Dr. Fletcher in at the sanitarium i guess technically technically fred mason's in more than that right because we do have the flashback sequences that as you said flashbacks within flashbacks cuz not only are we getting the flashbacks to captive wild woman, of course. Then we're also getting the stock footage from the big cage being re- reused. So you're doing a flashback of the last film with the stock footage in the flashback. <laughs> seven degrees of like something or other. Anyway, it it, it
0: well. So it, it, much so, of this movie is the recap. Well, you've got a sixty-five
1: minute running time, and you know you have so much of the corner. InQuest, which really, it was a framing device to try to do the background. You didn't need it, right? The reason you're doing it is to throw in the flashbacks. That's that's really the only reason why you're doing the corners thing, because it really doesn't play into the story at all. You could have done the story without that. But then again, you wouldn't have had 65 minutes of a film. You would have had 30 minutes, Kind of goes where I was saying, if you take captive wild woman and you cut down all of the big cage footage and you take the new footage from this, you could have worked with it somehow and kind of made an amalgam and then throw elements of the third movie in as well. Or maybe kept the third movie as just a one and done sequel. I don't know.
0: Yeah, it starts with this coroner's inquest, I guess. They're accusing Dr. Fletcher of murder kind of a bridge between the two movies and, you know, very coincidentally, the character crosses and then they kind of, after the flashbacks are done, well, no, the whole thing's flashbacks. They sort of pass the torch to the new characters. I liked some of the stuff that was done with that. Like, we got a little bit of backstory about Sheila. Fred talks about his trip to the Amazon or wherever and how special Sheila was. And there's even a little hint of the natives believed in this ability for animal mm-hmm. to change into human, which doesn't end up really having anything to do with anything. It's just loosely tied to it. But wow. I kind of like the attempt, you know, to kind of give a little more background, a little more story. I did like that Fred was now married. It, I kind of had to laugh. So I was like, so
1: you want to study something more. I'm going to buy a sanitarium. Okay. <laughs> so I, you know, I was like, wow, that's... That escalated, didn't it? it was like, yeah. I think I'm going to be a scientist. I'm going to buy this sanitarium. You know, Aquinetta does get a little more to do here. We do hear her speak. She really couldn't act her way out of a paper sack. Let's be honest. But it does kind of go with the character. Oh yeah, I think so. Her her lack of acting abilities actually makes sense because she's really not spoken much before, right? She yeah. was Pila. I think where her lack of acting abilities comes into play is in dead man's eyes and in her sanctum, when she just really kind of delivers a dead performance, no pun intended, she should be a better actress than that here. You can accept it as like, well, yeah, but she's not really been a woman for very long. So she's going to act a little different. She's going to act a little weirder. she's going to speak a little more stunted. And I think that's, that makes sense, I guess.
0: Yeah. It suits her character.
1: Yeah. Again, some familiar names. We have Reginald LeBorg as the director. Of course, he did several Inner Sanctum movies, Calling Dr. Death, Weird Woman, uh, Dead Man's Eyes. And we mentioned these last time, but I'll mention them again. These are classics. Mummy's Ghost, Black Sleep, Voodoo Island, Diary of a Madman. He ended his career with So Evil, My Sister in 74 before uh, dying in 89 at the age of 86. So he had a long career and is well-remembered, I think, amongst horror fans. The story was by uh, Henry Sucher Sucher, and then the screenplay was by Bernard Schubert, who did Mark of the Vampire, The Mummy's Curse, The Frozen Ghost, Henry Sucher, and then Edward Dean, who did Calling Dr. Death, The Cat Creeps, and Curse of the Undead. Yeah, a lot of these titles were just kind of repeating. So you got some horror cred there a little bit. And then again, I'd say, well, you know what? They should have done better. They apparently just didn't have enough material to come up with 65 minutes of footage. They had even less material than they did with the first movie. So they have to really rely on that, on the on the stock footage from the big cage and then the flashback sequences to basically add that whole corner office sequence, which really, I guess, you know, I, I've seen that device in other films. So that's fine. It, it could work as this let me tell you this story kind of thing. But all it really serves is just to kind of flesh out a little bit because the core story, you don't have a lot
0: there. The cardinal sin of this movie though, is I don't believe until the very end when she's lying dead, do we even see Paula in her ape woman form? It's a that attacks people and kills people we see no transformation maybe her hand under the you know yeah. she I'm not sure but if you're going to use some stock footage use at least a little of that from the first movie to yeah. show the monster
1: yeah if if you don't have a big budget which clearly they didn't with these films you would have thought that okay if you're relying on that stock footage then then let's see some of that as opposed to Clyde Beatty going on about his you know <laughs> lion taming again I don't know. I just, you know, they kind of coming in with the mix of all the other better movies they were cranking around, you know, out around this time. It, it does seem like this one, they really were, you know, they, they lacked some inspiration for this one because there's more story in the next one than there is in this one. And it wasn't like they cranked out the sequel because, I mean, it comes out a year later. You had a year to come up with a better story. And this is the best you could do. I still, I mean, I enjoyed it because, again, you've got some good actors in it. Obviously, some, as we said, less less than appealing. But I think if you would have just put Joe Average into the role of Dr. Fletcher, I would have liked it a lot less. I like J. Carroll Nash. I'm not going to say a lot about him because we talked a lot about him in the last episode. But he's well known for a lot of the, the, the roles and films that he did including Dr. Renault's Secret, which, spoiler alert, we may be talking about again in the future. So J. Carroll Nash, three months in a row. But I mean, you know, he was also in like House of Frankenstein and Mr. Moto and Charlie Chan movies and played Charlie Chan and the New Adventures of Charlie Chan TV series. And of course, he was Dr. Frankenstein in Dracula versus Frankenstein in 71 well-known actor from this time period both on radio and on tv and movies he turns in a a good performance it's not his best but he turns in a decent performance and it elevates the movie for me a little bit that's probably why i i I like this one maybe a tad better than you but not much because this one wasn't horrible there just wasn't a lot
0: oh yeah without the top actors and even the ones that just appeared briefly, this would have been a lot worse. The ending, the very ending, uh, I know it was corny and I know it's a product of its times, but it just really left kind of a sour taste in my mouth. I mean, they've been through this huge coroner's inquest and J. Carol Nash is obviously going through some strain. I mean, he's, yeah, he killed, but he, he had to. And, in the end, you know, they they learn the whole story, and they're like, and the coroner just, you know, shakes his hand and is like, "Gosh, sure am sorry, you know, have a nice day." And yeah, like, yeah. so we uh, almost
1: sent you to the electric chair, but I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's oh, shake okay. on it. Let's, let's forget about fun.
0: it. I mean, let's see a real sequel where Nash takes him to court and sues him for.
1: You know what I thought of uh, when that scene came up? If you ever see the movie uh, Bells of Saint Mary's where the two kids are fighting on the, on the playground, the ones being a bully to the other one. And the the kids learned how to box from Ingrid Bergman has taught them how to box. And then afterwards it's like, well, I'm willing to shake on it and let's be friends and let's have some ice cream. It's like, (laughs) okay, gosh. And then they shake hands. (laughs) A minute ago they were circling each other, like, you know, Ollie and Frazier going at it. That time period is like, okay, gosh, we'll be friends. Jungle woman. It, it's okay, because it's part of a trilogy. I mean, obviously, you don't want to see this one by itself. You do want to see Captain Wild Woman first, at least, so that you get some of the story, even though it does a really good job of filling in the, the blanks. I would suggest either watching them back to back. I mean, it's probably going to make the flashback sequences stand out a lot more. I don't know, maybe watching all three one way after the other. It's kind of like pulling off a Band-Aid, right? You just pull it off quicker and then gets it over with a little bit quicker. You know, this is kind of interesting because this movie was one of the last released on VHS in 1998. It got a standalone DVD release in 2014 as part of the Universal Vault series, which I was like at the time I'm like 20 bucks. this movie which clocks in at 65 minutes and like the universal vault is like the warner archive you you don't get anything else with it and then it just kind of languished i guess after that and now it's part of the blu-ray set which is the better way to go even though i if i didn't say it i'll say it that price tag on the blu-ray set is pretty high for four movies that clock in at basically not even four and a half hours between the four films I know you get some extras what extras did you get
0: well you know that's the thing and that's funny because I always you know explore and I don't know I must not have clicked the right button because I didn't even see that there were any commentaries and the only extra is trailers on two of the three but then I was reading the back because there was a booklet in there and I thought oh maybe there's some more information and stuff and it lists there must have been commentaries for all of those so those would be really the only real extras
1: yeah i mean that's kind of unfortunate i mean i wish that there would be maybe something at least type of mini documentary you know that would at least kind of help sting and i know some people are just gonna immediately just go right like yourself it's like i'm gonna add this to my collection as much as i hate to say it, it is like i'm happy with my vhs it was kind of fun watching this one on vhs uh i always love those opening universal monsters collection videos right i mean i i think we all agree that back then it was so cool to plug in that tape because now this movie, you can watch this over and over again. And Jungle Woman, not a movie that would have popped up on television with great regularity. I mean, I growing up in the 70s or 80s, you know, we we had seen Dracula or Frankenstein or brighter Frankenstein. But when they started doing these really deeper dives on movies like The Monster and the Girl or The Mad Ghoul, maybe we'd seen a picture of it somewhere. These were like first time viewings. So you go in with all these high expectations and then you kind of come out with a jungle woman and you're like, all right, well, that wasn't great, but still it was cool to have. And, and something that you hadn't seen before. I will say though, that this is probably only my second time watching this movie captive wild woman. I think I only watched this one, that one twice as well. These were, I think I watched them once and I'm like, okay. Would have been a very long time. These particular videos, Jungle Woman and Jungle Captive, I bought after I bought Captive Wild Woman on DVD because I wanted the rest of the series, and so I bought them off eBay. With Captive Wild Woman coming out, and what did I say? 2009. So it's been probably 12 years since I've seen these movies, and you know what? It'll probably be another 12 before I do. But I enjoyed them for what they are, Jungle Woman. I'm going to say, since you said this is your least favorite, I mean, it's probably second place for me. It's tied, I think, with Jungle Captive. Hmm. As Jungle Captive has less from an actor's perspective. I mean, there's not really the cast in that one to bring it forth like we have in this one. But it does have a better story, I think, than what we get with Jungle Woman. Because as we said, there's just not a lot of story here. Worth watching, if you're a Universal fan, just towards the bottom of your list.
0: And Joe did not mince words when he wrote his little mini review. He gave it one and a half stars. He said, a sequel that recycles a lot of footage from the original film, which itself featured a ton of footage from another film. Overall, a real mess and unfortunately, a real bore.
1: You know, he's not entirely wrong. No, not at all. If you're a fan of J. Carroll Nash like I am, it might elevate it a little bit like it did for me. But even then... It's only going to elevate it so much because then when he's not on the screen, you have the character of Bob played by Richard David, who I can't imagine, how, you know, I want to seek out Hat Check Honey
0: now and see if- <laughs> On the page when it says he's known for, they put Hat Check Honey in front of <laughs> Jungle Woman. I, you know, if you see Hat Check Honey, you've seen the entire Richard David <laughs> filmography.
1: How I many heard- other people can you say that about?
0: For that reason alone, I think we need to
1: seek it out. Let's see if it's out there on YouTube.
0: Wait a minute. I got to check with the police first. Police? Yeah, it's the law. Where are you keeping the ape woman?
1: Right over here. You want to see her? Yeah. It's Fred.
0: Now, please let me out of here. Anne. I need you. What do you mean? I need your blood.
1: Of Paula, the ape woman, is stolen from the morgue and the attendant is murdered. With only a surgical smock as a clue, Detective Harrigan suspects Don Young. Or does he? Perhaps he's using him to learn what strange experiments Dr. Stendhal is performing at his laboratory in the country. Okay, we're back. Now, before we dive into the next movie, and before we dive into our What Happened in the Year 1944, did a little bit of searching for Hat Check Honey. Now, it is a hard movie to find. It's not on YouTube, not streaming anywhere. It's available on the bootleg DVD market. You're going to have to kind of dig a little bit deep to find it. And is it worth finding? I don't know. It doesn't have a lot of reviews on IMDb, but it does have a 6.9 rating, which is interesting. Uh, It's a comedy musical Funny enough, it stars Milburn Stone. He's one of the supporting stars in it. But it stars Leon Errol. Now, if you don't know who Leon Errol is, he's a comedian. I I discovered Leon Errol back in the early 80s when we had cable. We know Superstation TBS. They would have Three Stooges and uh, Little Rascals and Looney Tunes. Remember, they would do that hour block where you could Watch Three Stooges, Little Rascals, and stuff. One summer, instead of the Three Stooges, instead of Little Rascals, they played two reeler short subjects from Edgar Kennedy and Leon Errol. Now, Edgar Kennedy, people might recognize him if you're into classic comedies. He was in a, a lot of uh, films around that time. A lot of Laurel and Hardy, Mark's Brothers. He often played a cop something would happen and he'd always kind of have this slow burn and he'd kind of do the thing over his face. And Leon Errol kind of had a look like Buster Keaton and was kind of the sad, sad guy. Usually he was married and he was getting himself into all sorts of predicaments and, you know, misunderstandings and said, um, it doesn't look like it's like he's the lead role, but he's like third on the cast. I have to admit, I'm kind of interested in that check honey now. Because I, I like Leon Errol. He's not like an A-list comedian, but um, I kind of like his shorts. And there, there's a handful of them out there. But that one summer, it was kind of cool seeing all these shorts that, you know, honestly, since then i I have some on DVD. I think Film Detective, if you're familiar with that website, they, they've got a selection of Leon Errol shorts on there. Oldies.com also has some Leon Errol out there, I think, on DVD. Hat check honey, who knew? Uh, Okay, what happened in 1944? We may have done this year before, so if we did, I think you're going to hear a few new things. I did a few different things on 1944, but of course, World War II was still going on, uh, but the end was near, uh, or nearing, I guess I should say. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected to a fourth term as president. He would die the following year, and of course, shortly thereafter, The I forget which uh, amendment it was passed, but he would be the only four-term president. And going forward, presidents can only have two terms. Meat rationing ended in the United States in 1944. We all know the story of Anne Frank, the diary of Anne Frank. Well, she was 15 years old in 1944. She was captured by the Nazis, was sent to the uh, Auschwitz concentration camp, and most likely died of typhus in February, 1945. I'll be honest with you. I never quite knew how Anne Frank died. I knew that I knew that she had, it had been so long, I think since I had heard anything about Anne Frank, I didn't realize she'd actually went to Auschwitz and, mm-hmm. and ended up dying of typhus. This is another one that I honestly, I'm a, I love music from this time period. And I have to say, I never knew this Glenn Miller died on December 15th at the age of 40. He was flying over the English Channel on his way to Paris to entertain the troops. And uh, his plane went down. Fortunately, I think everyone on the plane died, and he received the Bronze Star Medal posthumously in 1945. And I guess there's all sorts of conspiracy theories that the plane may have been shot down by accident, that he was actually working for FDR and may have been trying to broker some type of peace with the Germans or something uh, covertly. I don't know, You know, the usual conspiracy stuff, but I had never heard of any of that. And I did not realize that he died at such a young age. That was kind of surprising. Kidney dialysis was invented by uh, Willem Kolf in the Netherlands. And sunscreen was invented by Benjamin Green in the United States. It was originally invented to protect soldiers in world war ii it was so successful that he went on to become the founder of copper tone and the rest as they say is history if uh you went to the movies movie tickets were about 25 cents popcorn was a dime soda was five cents and candy was five cents small candies were five cents future movie stars and uh, movie personalities george lucas and danny devito were born in 1944, and the world was also graced with Jerry Springer's birth in 1944. Take that for what it's worth. Popular songs of the day included I'll Be Seeing You and Swinging on a Star by Bing Crosby, and the Trolley Song by Judy Garland. Top movies included Double Indemnity, Laura, Meet Me in St. Louis, Arsenic and Old Lace, Going My Way and Gaslight, Popular horror movies included The Uninvited, The House of Frankenstein, The Scarlet Claw, The Pearl of Death, The Lodger, Curse of the Cat People, and Weird Woman. That's what was happening in 1944.
0: You made me think of something when you're talking about going to the movies and you know how it seems like you complain that the concessions at the movie you know cost so much and... Mm-hmm. I realized in proportion to those prices that you were listing, you know, that if the movie itself was 25 cents and the bag of popcorn was 10 cents, so it's always been sort of a high ratio. Uh, That's nothing new, apparently.
1: Not really, I guess, when you think of it that way. Shall we dive into Jungle Captive? Jungle Captive, July 29th, 1945. You know, summer blockbusters, I guess, three years in a row. Summertime uh, adventures with Paula, the the ape woman. This time, though, we've got... Well, I don't think we have any flashbacks in this one. I don't think, do we? I don't I think there was any. Know. And and no stock footage either in this one.
0: Real opportunity to break out and do something new, right?
1: Yes, this was an opportunity. And, well, you know, they didn't quite take advantage of that opportunity. And we don't really quite have necessarily the big name draws, I, I guess, into this one. Otto Kruger, I guess, to an extent. Otto Kruger is, is a name I'm familiar with. At a time, he was he was probably bringing people into the movies. I know that he'd done stuff like Saboteur. High Noon was something that he had coming up in the future. He had done Dracula's Daughter, Another Thin Man, Tarzan's Desert Mystery, he had Colossus of New York. I thought that's a fun movie that we should do. Have you seen Colossus of New York? I have not. That's a fun one that we could do like a robot running amok kind of theme. I think it would be kind of fun. I haven't seen that movie for a long time. I think it's even on Blu-ray. Uh, he was also in Thriller and science fiction theaters. Otto Kruger is probably the big name here. The rest of the cast, well, aside from one, Vicki Lane Takes on the role of Paula Dupree. Apparently, Aquanetta had moved on to bigger and better things. Vicki Lane had about the same lengthy career as Aquanetta. She was only in seven films, but, you know, kind of an interesting, diverse career. She was married to a, a jazz performer and actually recorded a jazz album in the 1950s but didn't really stick around in Hollywood. She did die at a young age, though, 1983 at the age of 57. I don't know what she died of, though. Very young age. Emelita Ward is Anne Forrester, the, I guess, femme fatale in this one, sort of, I guess, in a way. A couple of things that note as I was looking at her career, she was in Gildersleeve's Ghost. Gildersleeve is a radio character, the great Gildersleeve. He had a series of comedy movies in the 1940s. The Best Years of Our Lives, of course, a well-known Academy Award winning film. I think, yeah, definitely nominated. That one, Best Picture, I think, in 1946, I think. Anyway, she also died at a young age, 1987 at the age of 63 of breast cancer. We have Phil Brown playing the character of Don Young. Phil Brown, we talked about him last month. He was uh, David Jennings in the movie Weird Woman. The... um, Irate boyfriend, I guess. He was also the state senator in Superman, the movie and Uncle Owen in Star Wars.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Last but certainly not least, we have Rondo Hatton as Moloch, the brute, not playing the creeper role that he would, but kind of the same, really, in a way. I mean, more of a subservient character, I guess,
0: this go around. Question for you. Was this Rondo's first horror movie? I mean, I know he was uncredited in the hunchback of Notre Dame in 1939. And then his movies as the Creeper were after this. But so is this his really first
1: I'm trying to think. I'd have to take a look at, at at the list of films that he did. He did a lot in very short amount of time. And I guess depending on when they were filmed and when they were released. But taking a look at, at, at his list here.
0: Well, uh, I guess unless you count the Pearl of Death, he played. Pearl of
1: Death, because he was playing the Creeper character in that. And then this one, Spider-Woman Strikes Back and House of Horrors and Brute Man. Yeah, I guess, you know, technically, Pearl of Death would be his first. So this would be his second. Okay. Initial thoughts are, I, I as we just kind of talked about a little bit, this one has a better story because we're not dealing with flashbacks and we're not dealing with flashbacks within flashbacks and stock footage, stock footage of stock footage. I don't know. Something about this one, I, you know, again, I kind of put it in a tie with, with with Jungle Woman because it falls a little short for me, but there is more story here than what we get with Jungle Woman. I enjoyed it enough. You know, again, it didn't necessarily blow me away, but it's not the worst film I've seen, and I don't think it's necessarily the worst universal film I've seen which I know people are going to say, well, what do you consider to be worse? I remember Monster and the Girl is not a universal film. It was actually a Paramount film. People often, you know, consider that universal, but originally it wasn't. I'm thinking 1950s, there's a movie called The Thing That Couldn't Die. I remember is kind of fun, kind of painful to watch. It didn't quite have the production standards, and it is technically a universal film, That one I remember being less than thrilled about. This is certainly down towards the bottom of the list, but I I don't know if it's necessarily the the very, very, very bottom. The Mad Ghoul, uh, not a lot in that one, but it's been so long since I've seen that one. I don't know if I like this one more or less than Mad Ghoul. What do you think?
0: Well, there's things I liked and things I didn't like. I liked Otto Kruger as the mad scientist in this one. To me, he was the least suspicious i mean i guess j carol nash wasn't that suspicious but he was put in that role from the very beginning of the movie as being the the mad scientist i didn't really suspect otto Kruger with rondo hatton involved i don't know i was just kind of surprised really when it when otto Kruger did turn out to be not the nice grandfatherly doctor to his young protege then and i liked rondo hatton in this and yeah i did too I did think it picked up well off of the previous film, right? Because
1: we've got Paula basically on the slab and Moloch comes in and and kind of a funny scene ends up stealing the body, kind of tricking his way into the situation and then killing the, uh, the guard or desk clerk or whatever that character was. And then, you know, going on to steal the body. That was a nice connection that... You don't always get in the Universal movies. Uh, Sometimes I'm thinking about you, mummy. The mummy will (laughs) go into a swamp and then end up in another country in the next movies. There was a nice connectivity, continuity between between the three films. Yeah,
0: I like that as well. What I didn't really like is that they stuck with that theme of the monster falling in love with somebody. And this time, though, it was Rondo Hatton that was smitten by Anne. That sort yeah. of shifted in which in turn makes Paula the Ape Woman sort of a secondary character in this really. She
1: did seem to have less to do in this film, I think. Whereas Aquanetta got to be herself. And we, as we complained, right, that we don't really see much of, of Aquanetta in, in the in the makeup work. We really don't I'm trying to how much did we see her? I can't even we didn't see Vicki Lane.
0: We did. did. We, But we do see more of the ape woman in this
1: Yeah, Yeah, we see more of the ape woman in this one, but Vicky Lane doesn't do anything, really. I mean, not much.
0: No, she uh, when she is transformed back, you know, she spends most of her time just wandering around the grounds. Yeah. Don't know that she speaks. I don't think that she does in this one, so it's kind of like the... (laughs) Frankenstein's
1: monster. I speak. I don't speak. You know, well, I'll mouth my words, but you won't hear me say anything. They kind of went and pulled back on that. And again, maybe Vicki Lane just wasn't the actress. Hard to believe someone could act less than Aquanetta. Sorry for Aquanetta fans out there. I think that any actress could have probably followed that up and done just as just as well as Aquanetta did.
0: And the other Um, thing I didn't like is that there's a dog that's killed.
1: Yeah, again, I'm glad that, you know, these were not movies that that Carla wanted to to watch. The whole concept, and you kind of talked about it, the glands and bringing, you know, human to, it's a little bit of Dr. Moreau-ish, right? Which is not a thing, because Carla knows is like, the animals get hurt. You know, they they always get hurt in those scenarios. She She was right. To move along on these three films, you had some good cred. With the writers and directors. Dwight V. Babcock was the writer. We had mentioned him last month. His very first film was Dead Man's Eyes. He also wrote Pillow of Death. Uh, um, what a title. The Mummy's Curse and House of Dracula and The Brute Man. So he, he'd work again with Rondo. M. Coates Webster, who also did The Brute Man and also did Strange Confession. And then directed by Harold Young, who Interesting. So he did the mummy's tomb. He did the frozen ghost. He also did the uh, live action sequences and the three caballeros. <laughs> <laughs> How you go from the mummy to three caballeros? I don't know. Now this is something though that really caught my attention. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever heard about this. So he directed a 1961 television pilot called witchcraft and it was intended to be kind of like a Twilight Zone series. The pilot was 30 minutes long and it stars a young Darren McGavin. Hmm. I don't know if witchcraft is out there. I didn't do a search for it, but that definitely intrigued me. Uh, It didn't sell, but it had to do with apparently a witch and witchcraft. That has definitely piqued my interest. I'm sure that it's probably out there somewhere, I would hope. But you never know. TV shows from 61. We don't have all american tv shows from that time period especially a a tv pilot that didn't sell but maybe it's out there somewhere but young darren mcgavin i was like wow that kind of caught my attention
0: you kind of skipped over detective harrigan which is an aspect of this movie i kind of like. that whole subplot of yeah i did i did yeah what have you got uh, on him? you know anything about uh jerome i don't him? have
1: anything about him right right up on hand what do you do you have anything on him
0: I don't, but with a click of a button, I could find out something.
1: (laughs) The wonders of the internet. Yeah, I, you know, when I was going down the list, I did that. And then I realized, oh, wait, doc yeah, the detective Arrigan. I, I did skip over that.
0: Oh, Miracle on 34th Street. He was a district attorney. Maltese Falcon. He was Miles Archer. Oh, he was, yeah, the district attorney. Okay, now, yes. Okay, gosh, how did I miss that? I liked him. I, I called him the like the smiling detective because he always had a smile on his face. And it was, you know, he was kind of yeah. trying to maybe charm him and say, oh, I don't suspect you. I'm just asking these questions, you know, but he really kind of had ulterior motives.
1: I'm thinking of some of the other detectives, you know, that we had in the Inner Sanctum series. Yeah. You know, there's sometimes you get the hard-boiled detective and then you have the ones like, I'm not asking any questions. I'm just having a conversation. It's like, all right, Colombo. Yeah. You know? it's <laughs> like, yeah, you're asking questions. So here's a little bit of interesting story, and and this I got from the Universal Horrors book by uh, Tom Weaver, Michael, and John Brunis. The character of Anne Forrester was originally supposed to be played by Australian actress Betty Bryant. Betty fell ill right as filming started. And so a doctor was called in to take a look at her. And apparently the doctor developed, as they say, an unhealthy obsession with her and turned into a stalker. Mm-hmm. And he was going to the studio, actually caused problems with production. I don't know where that fell into. It was like, if she chose to leave production or if they had to, to let her go but it was nine days into filming. And I can't imagine this took much longer than nine days to film. Amelita Ward was brought in. So there had to maybe be some reshoots done. Kind of an interesting story. We hear about, you know, stalkers today. And, and we didn't think about stalkers being back then. But at a doctor, all, nonetheless, that's, that sounds like a universal inner sanctum plot, to be honest with you. Kind of an odd story. Yeah, I got that from the Universal Horrors book, Harlan Press. The Bible, if you're a lover of universal uh, horror films, the, that book is just chock full of tons of information. This movie, of course, has been probably the hardest of the three to find. came out on VHS in 98 uh, the same collection as Jungle Woman, but it was never released on DVD. didn't even get a Universal Vault uh, series release. It wasn't until the Universal Horror Collection Volume 5 came out from Shout Factory, that it was officially available on home media for the first time, gosh, what, in over 20 years, because 98 was the VHS release. Yeah, this was uh, the only way you could have gotten this other than VHS would have been a bootleg, and it would have been a bootleg of the uh, VHS copy, most likely. A harder film to find, now readily available on Blu-ray.
0: And this was Joe's favorite. He gave it three stars. One more than the original and twice as many as the second one. He called it the best of the trilogy for sure, with less stock footage, more Ape Woman and lots of Rondo. You know, I could see that
1: liking that, you know, if if you're really not a fan of the stock footage, that could really throw you off with Captain Wild Woman. And so it sounds like that was a big deterrent for him. I could see somebody liking this one. You're, You're not getting the complete story, I guess, but... If you watch all three together again, certainly ended on a, on a better note than if, if it would have ended with jungle woman, jungle captive in that regards is from a story perspective is better than jungle woman. Interesting, interesting thoughts. Thank you, Joe, for sharing this. Cause those all came from Facebook, right? As, as, yep. From
0: our it? Facebook group. Yep.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, we'd love to hear from more people as well. That's a cool way to do it. Share it on Facebook, and we'll, as we said at the start of the show, we'll share your thoughts here uh, as we review the
0: movies. That wraps that up. Let's take one more break, and we'll come back and do new business.
1: 1121. Just two minutes later than it was two minutes ago when you asked me. Maybe you ought to be over by now. You ought to be there, taking vows. What's the matter? You
0: afraid to look yourself in the face?
1: Right now, I'm so nervous I couldn't even tie my own shoelaces. Well, oh, what are you nervous about?
0: After all, it's only your future. A Hollywood contract and thousands of
1: dollars at stake, that's all. You're afraid, no.
0: back and we're joined by my one-year-old kitten sitting on the back of my chair. Welcome, London. Hello, London. (laughs) London's up there to sort of demonstrate her disappointment of the lack of home video releases coming out in last part of April and first part of May. Uh, She doesn't realize that her daddy is kind of happy because he could use a little break from his pocketbook. There's a couple things that are coming. uh, April 27th from Code Red, we have Werewolves on Wheels. 1971. Then in May, we would jump clear to May 11th, and I am pretty excited about this King Kong 1976 coming out from Shout Factory. First, I believe, United States Blu-ray release of that version of King Kong. When we did our very first episode, I had ordered a foreign version of King Kong on Blu-ray to watch for our show, but now there will be an official United States release.
1: It includes the TV version too, doesn't it? I believe so. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: And a special poster. Now, here, Rich, I am in in so many ways. I am reaching crossroads in my life. <laughs> um, as you know, my daughter and I went to the theater. Kong, Godzilla versus Kong, was enough to get us out to try to go to the yeah, theater. Yeah. And as we walked in, we're getting our ICs. And man, have I missed IC's. Those are just mm, amazing. They had a stack of posters from Godzilla versus Kong. I'm trying not to collect those things now. You know, you got to draw the line somewhere. But I want to get at
1: your head right now, and you've got this great Godzilla poster over your left shoulder. You know, another Godzilla poster would look really good.
0: Anyway, (laughs) uh, I made myself a deal. I said, "Okay, if there's one here after the movie, I'll pick one up. But I'm not going to sit and hold it during the movie. Yeah. They were gone. So Uh I didn't get one. Uh, You know, who would have thought? Same thing with King Kong. I literally I I keep getting emails from Shout Factory right now that I have something in my cart that I did not go through and pay. And that's because King Kong is sitting there. And I sat and still, I guess, I'm debating how much difference does pre-ordering it and getting that poster make? What am I going to do with that poster? It's cool. It's really nice. I like it. But why can't I just wait till this comes out and get it? And there's probably going to be a Shout Factory sale in the future.
1: I had to get the Paul Nasche limited edition of the Howl of the Devil so I could get the red case and the nipples on the cover of the slipcover you're talking to the wrong person here. I will say though, you know, that because of the social distancing, you had an empty chair right next to you. You could
0: have put the poster. Thank in- you, Richard. You're really pouring salt in the wounds today. I, <laughs> yeah. I do hear what you're saying though. you reach a point. You've only
1: got so much wall space, right? And then
0: I, I'm like, it's a poster. It's a wafer thin, you know, it, and I've got, I bought these nice art Folios to put my posters in so that I could sit down like a book and flip through them you know it could have gone in there easily no extra space but it was just the thought of continuing to collect more which is totally ridiculous because I contradict that every single day
1: I was gonna say you you (laughs) do deeper dives on 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 blu-rays and stuff than I do to your point you know we're talking about how they're the release schedule is kind of thinning out but you know that just when you think hey you know what I, I'm gonna get to save some money this month. Then you've got the Christopher Lee Eurocrypt collection that comes out for $150 that just screams, give me your wallet, give me your wallet, and I want all of your money, and I want the money you're going to save next month. I want it too. We're getting some of those bigger box set releases, you know, that come out, and that we're 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 to a point though that it's it's truly for collectors, right? Because I mean, it's deeper, deeper dives in certain genres. And so if you're into Euro horror, like I've gotten more into that lately, there's some titles, right, that are starting to to pop up that, well, and it gets nice and nice, cool artwork. And it's like, ah, that looks kind of cool. And well, you know, if I don't get this, it'll go out of print and I'll be regretting it because then I'm going to end up having to pay a hundred dollars if I want it. You know, we talked about a couple episodes ago. I forget the title of it now. The Jess Franco was a Dracula prisoner of Frankenstein Blu-ray that I got. And I, I think I sent you the DVD copy of it. And I know my Blu-ray version I think is better than the DVD version that I sent you. And I was very pleased with the Blu-ray that, that I came that it came with. You know that Etsy seller is no longer selling. I went there the other day and said, I wonder what they've got for sale. Nothing because they're gone. So Mm. I don't know if they got pulled because of copyright issues. I would say probably more than likely, but that's a case where that was something that was available. And if you didn't act now, all of a sudden, good luck finding that. And now I'm thinking, I'm glad I got that because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to get that Blu-ray,
0: even though it was a bootleg, probably more than likely. Those are to me, those are different. Like I'll invest in the Christopher Lee set because that's unusual. It like you said, it's for collectors. Yeah. King Kong 76, I love that movie, but I've seen it a lot. It's not that rare to see it on TV or have a I have the DVD. So that's where I start questioning is the repetitive purchases. Now, I do think, and I've mentioned this before, I think we are depleting the things that are going to be available. And here's a good example. Vinegar Syndrome has put out some really cool horror movies. They had a big April day surprise announcement of movies. None of them are horror. They're all, they're shifting into the, I don't know what they are, TNA kind of mature I don't even know what decade, 70s, 80s kind of comedy, whatever titles. I'm not saying that's the next like craze for collectors, but I I see more and more of those type of movies coming out than I do the horror movies.
1: Well, you know that Kino Lorber is supposed to start putting out some of the Santo movies this mm-hmm. year. Blu-ray. Uh, Santo versus the evil brain and Santo versus the infernal men. And that's a... Genre, I guess, if you will, that hasn't quite been tapped into yet. Partially because the rights and who has this copy and that copy. I mean, Kino Lorber's only, they've got rights to a handful of films. I've heard nothing more about those releases, but I'm getting those too. I don't have those, actually. And I've intentionally not purchased them because I knew Kino Lorber was putting them out. I think that, you know, much like the Paul release releases coming out, for right now there's there's still some paul nasci films that that can come out but eventually you're going to start to really have to go deep 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 dive and okay well this isn't a paul Nashi horror movie it's a paul Nashi crime thriller so how much of a paul Nashi fan are you really admittedly they they might lose me you know a little bit i'm i'm more into paul Nashi the horror films i don't want to be a paul nasci completist if a movie comes out that is a uh, definitely a crime thriller. I might have to think twice about adding it. You are right though. Eventually the pool is going to dry up, right? And there's, and some of these movies, if we go to a new format, there won't be another physical media format after Blu-ray. I mean, everything is gone streaming. There's going to be less incentive to do expensive, high definition upgrades by putting it on streaming because there's less of an opportunity to make your money back. Non-horror films, there's there's companies like Flickr Alley who put out a lot of silent films, and they've got an audience, and they're putting money into their releases, and as they find, but eventually, right, I mean, some of this source material, you can't even find it. The stuff doesn't exist. And they've got to put stuff out that people really know what it is, that there's somebody, uh, an actor, actress, that kind of pulls them in. But even those releases are going to be kind of far and few between. There's a company called the Film Preservation Society that is putting out a a version of, I want to say, was it? I can't remember. the. It says uh, Douglas Fairbanks movie. Hmm. I don't think it's Robin Hood, but it could be Robin coming out later this year. And they're doing a lot of work on the biograph. I think I've talked a little bit about it on the show. I know I've done my on my blog. But you know, that's like one release a year from them. It's amazing. They did a great work in the one that I, I got last year. I will absolutely get this next one. If there's a some type of fundraiser, you know, I would do it. I've got a fundraiser DVD that I'm expecting to get probably by June from Ben Modell, who's well known in the silent film community, with eight short subjects from Edward Everett Horton. Nobody knows who Everett Horton is, but if you see him, I was like, oh, okay, I remember from this movie, this movie, didn't know he did silent movies. They made a ton of money because there's still collectors out there that want stuff. You really have to know your audience and what they're looking for. Star Trek Voyager did a documentary. Uh, they're doing a documentary, the same people that did What We Left Behind and For the Love of Spock. They did a Indiegogo uh, in the month of uh, March. And they started off with a goal of $150,000 and ended up making $1.2 million. It blew all of their goals out of the water. They're going to be hopefully able to access the footage from CBS Paramount to, to run it through high definition. Voyager, the series, will never get the high definition release that The Next Generation did because it's too expensive to do what they did. next generation, it costs on average 10 to $20,000 per episode. Hmm. So you take that times 174 episodes in a market where there's clearly fans out there, but are they streaming or are they physical media? They didn't make their money back on next generation. So that's why they'll never do that. It is at the end of the day, it's all about money. And you and I, are still the physical media collectors, but there are a lot of people out there who are going strictly digital. So we're gonna see these physical media releases get farther and fewer between and more obscure. And eventually some of the, the source material stuff will be drying up. I don't think we're there yet, but I think you've tapped into a foreshadowing of, of a dark and ominous future. Meanwhile, our pocketbooks are jumping up and down for joy. I was like, thank God. <laughs> Yes.
0: Well, that was this week's episode of Collector's Corner. Yes. Yes. And that's those are the only two really releases. Like I said, it picks up in May, but we'll talk about those next episode. Uh, We do have a couple interesting birthdays, though. Speaking of King Kong and our very first episode, Jessica Lang's birthday is April 20th. She was born in 1949. So was somebody that I'm going to call our friend Veronica Carlson. I mean, we've met her. We met her. We're on that. her Facebook page. She wishes me happy holidays and wellness. You know, and I was struggling. I could not find an episode that we have talked about one of her movies. I know we talked about her from Monster Bash, but we the movies we did for that episode did not feature Veronica Carlson. So we may need to remedy that. Do you the remember same. talking about her in any? Well, she's in.
1: Frankenstein must be destroyed, destroyed, which we have not talked about on the show.
0: Horror of Frankenstein. Which we have not. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we need to do that. Yeah. April 22nd, 1894, Rondo Hatton. We just talked about him today. And we also, in episode 17, did a complete episode about him called Happy Birthday, Rondo Hatton. Anniversaries, April 17th, 1944. So this is funny. And I have a question for you. The Lady and the Monster. We talked about that in episode 12. If we only had a brain, that is a version of Donovan's brain. Is that the movie you referenced today saying could be one of the worst universal? You said the monster and the girl.
1: No, one of the worst universal it comes from the late 50s, 58, called The Thing That Couldn't Die.
0: Yeah, but you also mentioned something in the lady or girl and the monster. And
1: Well, I, I mentioned the monster and the girl, but I said that that's not a universal film. Right. It's actually Paramount one of those universal bought the rights to it and put it in the the package and stuff, but it's actually, yeah. I'm going to
0: circle back on that in a little bit. Okay. Uh, April 19th, 1972, Dr. Jekyll and sister Hyde. We did talk about that in episode 32, Dracula and Dr. Jekyll meet the Gorgon. That was our episode of monster bash where we saw movies that the people were going to be in and which surprises me that we didn't do Veronica Carlson. Nevertheless, April twenty fifth, nineteen sixty three, Day of the Triffids, episode two. Episode two. That's Day of the Triffids.
1: That shows you back then. If you if you look at that, we we dived all the way up to what two thousand and nine, I think. So we weren't as strict back in the early days our our time frame.
0: We're not that strict now. No, not really. We just tend to go classic. Yeah. Well, we have been these two months. Anyway, uh, April 27th, 1928, The Man Who Laughs from episode 51, a little more recent, The Sound of Silence. That's new business, except for finding out what you're up to with your other projects, Richard.
1: Still doing the old time radio classics, OTR Wednesday. Kind of going through a period right now where I'm just kind of doing random shows. Honestly, kind of just whatever strikes my women fancy of the week. I did Jack Benny this past week. I did an Easter episode. I've done some Shadow. I think I'm going to do Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, which is a crime. He's an insurance investigator. I think I'll be doing one of those in the next couple of weeks because that kind of ties in a little bit to a series that I started. As we're recording this, it's Easter Sunday, so last Monday I did part one of a four part series on the Dirty Harry franchise. I've been sitting on that for a while and yes, I know there's five movies, but there's four parts to my to my articles. I'm gonna be doing those every Monday. that'll go through the 19th of April. And then yeah, I've got a couple of dread medias coming up in the month of April. I did uh, reviews on a couple of the Valentine's Day Joe Bob Briggs movies so I offer up uh, in fact, I know that the April 5th episode of Dread Media is going to have The Love Witch. Uh, I'll offer up my thoughts on that. And then sometime either the next week or sometime later in April will be Tammy and the T-Rex with Denise Richards and Paul Walker. And Joe Bob, speaking of which, will be coming back this month. I think he comes back the 16th of April. I think that means there's probably going to be some more Dread, me- dread Media movies coming up in the near future. Beyond that, we're about a month, uh, a month or so away from my summertime series. So we're kind of getting ready to shift gears a little bit. We're doing the films of Harold Lloyd, mm. the silent comedian, also made it into the sound era, did a lot of classic films, and it was going to be something fun. We've had fun with that series, and I've had some good response. So thought it'd be fun to kind of stir it up a little bit and do some Harold Lloyd And not really what we're covering on the blog, but Carla and I have been watching a lot of Sherlock Holmes movies. We dive back into Sherlock Holmes and we've been watching some silent ones in the last month. 1916's Sherlock Holmes with William Gillette and 1922's Sherlock Holmes with John Barrymore. And we've done a couple of German ones in the last couple of weeks. Darhund von Baskerville, the 1914 version and the 1929 version some films that were lost and you know one of which was found in the basement of a church in Poland some crazy background stories behind these kind of picking up on our Sherlock Holmes episode from a year ago we we watched all the Basil Rathbone films and then Sherlock Holmes kind of got lost in the pandemic so we're kind of diving back into Sherlock Holmes again but I'm not covering those on the blog whatever doing outside of the of the blog what about you what do you got going on?
0: This will be old news by the time that this airs, but the fourth movie on the universal set that I watched these three movies on was the monster and the girl, which is why I asked you about that on, I guess, April 5th. If you want to go back and check that, I'm going to, I write about that. And it, it, to me, it was very interesting, maybe just because I had watched these three movies, but it, to me, it was very different and I really, really liked it. And The fact that it was a Paramount film and it was one of, I think, like around 700 that Paramount sold to Universal for television rights, you can tell the difference between a Universal movie and one from another studio. This is one that was made in 1941, a couple of years before these captive wild woman movies. And... They didn't shy away from the full brain transplant of a human into an ape. And so it definitely had a grittier feel to it. And I just really liked it. I'm writing it about that and that'll kind of be a sneak preview for this episode because then that will come out the next week. Sorry, that was a way long thing for that. No, very cool. though. Uh, I I do have an idea for May and this is kind of, dumb well it's not dumb a lot of people do it speaking of big fancy sets that I haven't cracked open I have the Gamera movies Mm. oh sorry (laughs) May and play on words what about Gamera Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) and I like it it.
0: during the month of May I may be cracking open that and watching some of the Gamera movies look forward to that now that I've said it that's going to make it happen
1: you know, I've been wanting to dive into the Godzilla Criterion set for the longest time. You know, Carla did not watch any of the current Godzilla series from the MonsterVerse because she knows she doesn't like the monster on monster violence. And she knows that it's much more believable uh, than the, the Toho films were. And so I didn't want to ruin Toho. I think we're going to be diving into those really soon. I've, I've been looking at that set. And so I'm, I'm on a Godzilla kick right now. Gamera might be something she might enjoy a little more because I mean, she does like those movies always kind of have a happy ending, right? With the kids and the songs and stuff like that. We're going to see how she does with, with Godzilla. Uh, she's got to get past that first movie. And if she can make it past that one, we'll see. I'm still hopeful someday that that set will end up in my, my grubby little hands. That Gamera said uh, that makes me weep. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Gamera. That's dived into those movies. Oh, five, six years ago, I guess now. And it was it was a fun series. I enjoyed it. That's it. What are we doing next time? Well, you know, we're sticking in the, the classic movie vein. And why not stick in the same years we've been in once we get past May? We do have some fun things lined up for the summer. So hopefully you'll stick with us one, mo- one more month for some classic 1940s goodness, because we're going to be doing the films of George Zuko. You know, we're probably not going to have any salacious stories like Lionel Atwill's Wild Sex Parties. But George Zuko's another one. He doesn't really get get his due as much. Sometimes he's lurking in the background. But George Zuko had a had a nice run. And we're going to be taking a look at three of his movies. Now, the caveat is, is that these are subject to change if we watch these and feel like maybe they're not the best example for George Zuko. I've seen all three, but it's been a while. So this is what we've got going right now. Dr. Renault's Secret from 1942, Voodoo Man from 1944, which I know also stars Bela Lugosi and John Carradine, and then Fog Island from 1945, which I believe also has Lionel Atwell. That's what we're going for for next month. That's your homework. And if something changes, we'll let you know on the Facebook page and say, Hey, you know what? We saw this and we decided to go this route instead. But these three movies should be relatively uh, easy for everyone to see. Fog Island's public domain. Buddha Man has been given a Blu-ray release. Dr. Reno's Secret, I, I believe, was part of one of those Fox Horror Classics box sets. They're out of print, but I think they're available at reasonable prices. That's what we have in May. Then, of course... As we've talked about it, this summer we'll be headed back to the drive-in, and I'm fairly certain we're going to be getting out of the 40s, then we'll be getting into some 50s, 60s, and 70s, and maybe even some 80s goodness. That's going to be here before you know it. Less than two months away, we'll be diving back into the drive-in, so I'm excited about that. But next month, George Zuko.
0: I look forward to that. I don't know much about him. And if we do an episode like we did with Lionel Atwill or Fay Ray, where we kind of go through their history, I think that'll be fun. I just looked to see if there were if there were any biographies about him. And I do not find any other than a book called Hollywood's Maddest Doctors, Lionel Atwill, Colin Clive and George Zuko. I don't know if that's about the people themselves or their characters in the movies, Uh, I might check that out to see if we can get some interesting information to share. Well, Uh, Another idea, what happened in the year something, you know, it doesn't have to be tied to a movie. Why don't you do what happened in 1886, the year that George Zuko was born?
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I like that. Yes. It It was hard to do top movies. I
0: don't
1: (laughs) George Malaise wasn't quite making films just yet. The top music that'll be interesting. I'm what sure. What was the
0: price of gas? What was the price?
1: What was the price of of, of hay? And, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what? That's a good idea. I think I'm gonna see what I can find. What was going on in
0: 1886?
1: <laughs> I love it. Yeah.
0: All right. That's it. Thanks everybody for listening. Remember to to join the Facebook group page. Reach out to us. Provide some feedback. We'd love to have it. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts if you can. Anything else, Richard, before I introduce our song? I was going to say, where can people find you? I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Found- well, I, don't know if we did uh, I can be found at classichorrors.club, DC Comics Guy. You have your other website, but you haven't done it for I, I know. Been, Reaction a shot. I need to do something on that.
1: And CaseyCinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com is where you can find me. Hope everyone is staying safe, gearing up for better times ahead. I think we're all seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Jeff and I are talking about heading to the drive-in this summer and seeing about maybe
0: maybe seeing each other in the flesh (laughs) rather than via Zoom. So that'd be kind of fun. We'll go out on a song called Jungle Woman by Karen Park. It's from the 2009 album Ashes to Gold. It's available like. Almost all the songs we play, except for Beauties in the Eye of the Beholder, on <laughs> Apple Music. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, YouTube watchers, for watching. And yes, uh, we'll see you next, you next month. Bye, everyone. I raise my head up.